Some of you don't know me and you will learn that I do charts. I love charts. Uh, I know that's going to be hard to see all the way to the back, but I'll try to, I'll try to tell you what I'm writing up here. Uh, but if you take notes, you may, you may, if you're a drawing visual person, you may want to write some things down. You may want to wait till we're finished before you decide to write it down. We're talking about Abraham. He's a man who has been faithful. God called him out of Ur, a place of pagan background. He put everything, he put all his eggs in one basket, in the God basket, and he left Ur to go to the promised land. He traveled thousands of miles just to have the promises of God fulfilled in his life. He gets to a place in the promised land where he encounters a famine, a hardship. And instead of staying put, he turns to Egypt and goes there for help. Acts 17.11. I want to take a slight digression for a few minutes. Turn to Acts chapter 17, verse 11. Acts chapter 17, verse 11. Paul is with Silas. They're traveling throughout uh, Macedonia. And the people of Berea, it says, were more noble-minded or more noble than those in Thessalonica. And they listened eagerly to Paul's message. They searched the scriptures day after day to check up on Paul and Silas to see if they were really teaching the truth. Uh, I talked with a lot of you Bereans last week on this idea of the promised land and Egypt. Uh, some of you said to me, Bill, from my study of the scriptures, I've never heard this, I don't know what you're talking about, so I want to take ten minutes today and talk about this. Some of you did believe me, and so you'll just gain confidence that I was right. Uh, if you haven't reached the tipping point yet, I hope that happens for you this morning, but I'm grateful that you are studying the scriptures and you're asking questions. That's good stuff. I'm really proud of you for doing that. Uh, it, it doesn't frighten me to answer questions. I think that's good. Uh, but I'm going to now convince you of what I was saying last week. In the scriptures, the promised land and Egypt are spiritually charged places. There are uh, things that are said about the promised land throughout the whole Old Testament and things said about Egypt throughout the whole Old Testament that provide a framework for us to understand some of the New Testament. For example, Abraham is taken to the promised land really before he knows what it is. And that's in Genesis 12. That's the first book of the Bible, the 12th chapter of the first book of the Bible. We're introduced to this idea of the promised land. Later on, Israel is going to go to the promised land. Remember that? In fact, that's the whole story of the Old Testament, is they are released from Egypt 
to go to the promised land, and if they obey, they stay in the promised land, and if they disobey, what happens? They're kicked out. They're kicked out of the promised land. This is the place where God's best happens to them. And throughout the whole Old Testament, their focus is on receiving or walking in the promise of God. Their inheritance. This is their inheritance. They didn't earn it. God gave it to them. So far, so good. This is the place where you have to walk by faith. This place is watered by rain. Rain that comes from God. This place is watered by the Nile. The muddy Nile. The contaminated Nile. This place doesn't, in the same way, depend on God. Even showing up in how life is brought forth. This is the place, as you would guess, this is where you walk by sight. This is the place where you walk by faith. This is the place where you walk by sight. Israel throughout the Old Testament is always being challenged. Something always comes on them. There's a hardship. There's a famine. There's something going on that causes them to say, do I stay or do I go? Do I stay in the promised land or do I go? What is the book of Exodus about? It's about being delivered, being freed from Egypt to go where? The promised land. What is the book of Leviticus about? Have you thought about these things? The book of Exodus is about being released from bondage, right? Fair enough? What's the next book I get in the Old Testament? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. What's the message of the book of Leviticus? Holiness. How do I live in this land? Holiness. God says, you can only, you got to approach me my way. You don't get to come to me just any way you want. You have to come to me through a specific priesthood and through sacrifices. Right? Does that sound somewhat familiar to you? It should. You're released from bondage to walk in holiness because to live in this land, to live in this land of promise, you have to live a holy life. And God says, this is what that means. What comes after that? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. What's the next book? Numbers. Why is it called the book of Numbers? Because chapter 1 and chapter 26, one thing happens two times. A census of the people. And who's it a census of? The fighting men. The fighting men. What's the book of Numbers telling us? When you were released from Egypt and lived in, you have to live in holiness, you're going to this place and you're going here as a soldier. You're going as a soldier and you're going to fight a war for God. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Let's skip Deuteronomy because that's the reiteration of everything he's told them. 
What's the next book after that? Joshua. What's the book of Joshua about? The battles of God's people in God's land. Okay? What has God given them here? He's given them an inheritance. And though he's promised the entire thing to them, do you recall in Joshua how they are to appropriate it? Do you remember from Joshua? Step by step. It says, you'll drive out the inhabitants a little at a time. A little at a time. In other words, God's given them an inheritance. This is their whole inheritance, but they're only, they have to work tribe by tribe to establish, to appropriate their inheritance. Does this make sense what I'm saying so far? You can do this or you can say, you're a crazy person. I think you'll, you'll agree with me. If you've studied the Old Testament just a little bit, I'm hitting big picture stuff. So what? Here's the so what. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Just read it very quickly. What have you and I been given in Christ? Huh? Every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Is there something that Christ has that you you might need? Like, let's just start with the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You've been given those. Those are your inheritance in Christ. They are already given to you. How do you appropriate them? Through faith and through battle. Doing battle with your own flesh. Walking in the spirit, not walking in the strength of the flesh. Have I lost you? There is a picture that emerges in the New Testament built on the Old Testament. What was enacted physically and in reality in the Old Testament, there is a spiritual application to you and to me. When we were delivered from Egypt, we're told to be holy. We're also told, remember Paul even writes, if you've been reading along in our Timothy and Titus and the quest, remember Paul says, you know, be a good soldier for Jesus. Don't get entangled in the affairs of you know, everything that's going on, be a soldier. Where would he get that idea? Why would he get that idea? Well, part of it is because of this. 
We're to be soldiers. We've been given an inheritance. Ephesians 1, 3, we've been given every blessing in Christ. And now, through faith, we spend the rest of our life appropriating the inheritance we've been given. We'll never get it all. That's for a later time in another place. But for this life, we're delivered from Egypt. Egypt is a place to be from, not a place to go to. Egypt is a place to be from so that you live here, the place where God's best will happen to you. The place where you have to walk by faith, not by sight. The place that recognizes it's the water from God. It's totally dependent on God to bring life and blessing to it in this land. This land is not. It's fed by the Nile. This is a place to be from, not a place to run to. I don't know if any of this makes any sense, but it may later on, if it isn't right now. There's a, a big picture theme all throughout the scripture of the promised land and Egypt. You don't want to be here and run here. But if you're here, you'd love to get here. You and I, as believers in Christ, spiritually speaking, we have an opportunity to live here. But when we turn to Egypt for help, we are, in a sense, coming over here. We're leaving the place of God's best, and we're trying to take matters in our own hands and handle things according to our ways, not necessarily God's ways. You're, you're dovetailing on a big theme from the scriptures. Don't go to Egypt. Egypt is a place to be from, not a place to go to. If that still is a little confusing to you, I'm sorry. Uh, we'll have to spend a lot more time on it some other day. But I want you to see this as a big theme in Scripture. And so you Bereans, when you call me or email me this week, I want you to see, we can talk about this picture. But this is true, and you need to be convinced. God wants his people to live in the promised land. He doesn't want them to go to Egypt. Egypt, unless you get permission to go, is not a good place to go. And I was speaking in some shorthand last week, presuming you already knew this. So I wanted to take a few minutes and say, let me do a data dump on you so you understand a little bit better about the promised land and Egypt all throughout the scriptures. You say, well, I'm not sure I believe you. That's fine. You should read Hebrews 11. Okay? Hebrews 11. Let's just flip back to Hebrews 11 just for a second. We can start at verse 8. It was by faith that Abraham obeyed when God called him to leave home and go to another land that God would give him as his inheritance. He went without knowing where he was going. And even when he reached the land God promised him, he lived there by faith, for he was like a foreigner living in a tent. And so did Isaac and Jacob, to whom God gave the, uh, who God gave the same promise. Abraham did this because he was confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundations, a city designed and built by God. It was by faith that Sarah, together with Abraham, was able to have a child, etc., etc., etc. 
He goes on through. These faithful ones died in verse 13 without receiving what God had promised them in their entirety. But they saw it all from a distance and welcomed the promises of God. They agreed that they were no more than foreigners and nomads here on earth, and obviously people who talk like that are looking forward to a country they can call their own. If they had meant the country they came from, they would have found a way to go back, but they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That's why God's not ashamed to be called their God. It's by faith that Abraham offers Isaac, and then we go on through verse 23. It was by faith that Moses' parents hid him for three months. Verse 24, it was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, refused to be treated as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin, which was where? Egypt. He thought it was better to suffer for the sake of the Messiah than to own the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking ahead to the great reward that God would give him. It was by faith that Moses left the land of Egypt. He was not afraid of the king. Moses kept right on going because he kept his eyes on the one who's invisible. Egypt is a place to be from. God's people don't live in Egypt. They leave Egypt. They don't get into a hardship and run to Egypt for help. In chapter 16 of Genesis, turn back to Genesis. Let me move it around a little this morning just for a minute. Chapter 12, Abraham encountered a famine which prompted him to seek to take matters into his own hands. He turned to Egypt for help. Chapter 16 of Genesis, we're not going to get there this morning. Chapter 16 of Genesis, Sarah has encountered a famine. A famine of a barren womb. It cannot produce. What's her first thought? Just read the first three verses there. What does she do? Well, the first thing she does is she drops to her knees and prays and asks God for his direction. Oh, no, that's not what she does. <laughs> she takes matters into her own hands, doesn't she? And where does she turn to help? Where's Hagar from? Sarah's in a famine. Sarah doesn't pray. Sarah doesn't seek God's counsel. Sarah turns to Hagar, the Egyptian, for help. Abraham, sleep with Hagar. Okay. <laughs> Notice Abraham doesn't pause to pray about this. He says, I'll take Hagar. I, I agree with you, honey. Let's try that. Great scheme. This theme of famine and turning to Egypt shows up again and again and again. Okay? Chapter 12. We're not finished with it yet, but you've read chapter 12 last week. What drives Abraham into Egypt? In chapter 12, a famine. In chapter 46, what drives Israel into Egypt? Write it down. A famine. 
How does God deliver Abraham out of Egypt when he went there in chapter 12? Let your eyes drop down there if you need to. Look in chapter 12. How does God deliver Abraham? Plagues. Come on. I want to see some smiles. I want to see some, oh my gosh. In Israel, how does God deliver his people from Egypt? Plagues. Do you see the themes? They recur over and over and over in the Old Testament. Egypt is not a place to live. It's a place to leave. Egypt is a place to get out of because this is the place of God's best. This represents the world. Okay? This represents the world and how it does business. This represents the place where God is. Now, I know God is omnipotent. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. I know all these things. But in Scripture, these big picture things are really important for you to begin to get your arms around as you continue to study. You need to leave Egypt, not live in Egypt. Here's one of these big themes that shows up. Famine sends people to Egypt and God brings them out of Egypt. One more big theme and then we're going to go on with our lesson today. At least two Bereans asked me last week, they said, okay, smart guy, Joseph and Mary and Jesus went to Egypt. What's up with that? If Egypt is a place to not go, why did they go there? Great question. Did they have permission to go there? They had more than permission. They had direction from the angel of God. If God tells you something, you know what you should do? You should do it. So I don't care what Egypt represents, when God tells you to go, you go. But you got to understand what God was communicating. Think with me through the book of Exodus and the book of Matthew. How does the book of Exodus kind of get started? Something bad that happens. There's an evil king killing innocent babies. Yes? What's happening in Matthew 2? What? What? When God delivers Israel in Exodus, what where was the first what was the first miracle after the plagues that God did to take them out of the land? He parted the Red Sea, they went through the Red Sea. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul tells us they were baptized in the Red Sea. They didn't get wet, but they were baptized. That's what Paul says. chapter 2 there's an evil king killing innocent babies. God tells, shows up and tells Joseph and Mary and Jesus go to, go to uh, Egypt so that it can be said out of Egypt I called my son. He calls him out, right? Herod dies and they come out of Egypt. What is Matthew chapter 3? 
remember the big event that happens in Matthew chapter 3? Baptism. Jesus' baptism. Now wait a minute. Are you telling me that there's another big theme showing up here? Oh baby, we're not done yet. Jesus is baptized. Israel was baptized through the Red Sea. Where did Israel go after they went through the Red Sea? The wilderness. Matthew chapter 4. Where does Jesus go? Come home, baby. Are you seeing it? Where do they go from the wilderness? From here. Specifically to... They aren't in the promised land yet. They go to Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up on the mountain, yes, and he gets God's law, God's word. Yes, remember this? What happens in Matthew? The Sermon on the what? The Sermon on the what? On the mount? The Sermon on the mountain? The greater Moses is here. And he goes up on the mountain and he says, you've heard it said, but I tell you. Their heads are exploding. Because the last time somebody went up on a mountain who had been through the wilderness, who had been baptized, who had been in Egypt, the last time that had happened, God spoke and said, this is my law, do this. Now you've got a guy standing up on a mountain, sitting on a mountain, saying, you've heard it said, but I tell you, follow me. Does that sound like New Testament stuff? Follow me? Obey my word? Obey me? Understanding what's happened in the Old Testament and these big themes and big pictures helps flesh out. It helps enrich, it helps deepen your understanding of what's going on in the New Testament. This big theme of being delivered from Egypt for what? Being delivered from Egypt, believer. Being delivered from Egypt to, spiritually speaking, there's an application, to live in the promised land that is Ephesians 1.3. God says, live here. This whole thing, every blessing in Christ, is your inheritance. Live here. Don't go out here. What's out here? Egypt is out here. What is there for you out here? Nothing. Live here. Ephesians 2.10 also says, you remember 8 and 9, right? For it's by grace we've been saved through faith and this not of yourselves. What's Ephesians 2.10? Read it. Tell me what it says. You say, Bill, I'm not buying this land thing. This is my final one. And then we're going to move on. What does Ephesians 2.10 say? Okay, that's NIV. Somebody else, another version. Uh, let's look at New American Standard. Anybody have New American Standard? Paul's version. <laughs> Anybody have New American Standard? So that we may what? Walk in them. Who else walked in the promised land? Who else walked in their inheritance? 
God saved us and took us out of Egypt and put us, said, here's your inheritance, and I've even gone so far as to give you some things that I want you to do. This is your inheritance. This is why we do shape. Because we want you to discover what God is doing in your life with your design that he gave you. Because we want you to walk in this place and live out your inheritance. Not only your inheritance of character, which is the character of Christ, but also your inheritance of what he's created you to do as a believer, as a follower of Jesus Christ. Wow, you guys need some coffee. This is good stuff, baby. All right. You're a hard crab, you Bereans. What I want to do is just very briefly touch on so what. So what should our first response be? Last week we looked at Abraham. He's a faithful man. He gets into a famine, a hardship, and he takes matters into his own hands. I told you last week you need to remain instead of run, or remain instead of turning to Egypt. What I really want your first response to be in times of hardship Last week we talked about famine. It's something that could ruin you financially. It's something that could bring death if you stay too long. I mean, it's bad. By application, I think you can stretch that out to just hardships. In your times of hardship, your first response, when a hardship comes on you, you're in God's will. A hardship comes upon you. Your first response should be to stop, remain, and pray, and seek God's guidance. Don't do what Abraham did. Don't do what Sarah did. Stop and pray. And your first thought, your first response is, God wants me to stay here, not to leave. And ask the question that Job helped us Address when I'm in a time of hardship and like you, my first thought is to get relief. And so I take matters into my own hands to get relief. Abraham's first thought, I think, was to get relief. And so in doing that, he turned to Egypt. And what's written for us here that we're going to talk about today is a warning. The warning of self-reliance. But our first response as followers of Christ, as faithful men of God, is to stop, remain, assume God wants us to stay, and seek his guidance and counsel. What if in that prayer time, which could be one day, one month, I don't know how long it'll be, you're smart enough to know if I told you a formula, you'd know it was wrong. Because you've walked with God long enough to know in certain places God doesn't work by formulas. It's by leading in the Spirit. It's by a discernment issue. So I'm going to tell you as men, not as boys, but as men, you've got to walk with God. You've got to be walking in the Spirit. You've got to be praying. And trust that God is going to speak into your heart and into your situation. You say, well, how long do I have to do that before I take matters into my own hands? <laughs> I'm not answering that question. Because <laughs> you know what you'll do? You'll come back and say, well, Bill said. 
this is a question for men, not a question for boys. I tell boys something different. You're men. You have and you are walking with God. It is a discernment issue. You know that's true. You hope there's a formula. There isn't. Stop wishing for one. It's over. Put it behind you this morning. It's a matter of being on your knees and seeking God's face on your face. Now, if in that conversation you have with God, he tells you to go to Egypt, where should you go? Egypt! If God tells you to go to Egypt, he gives you permission, then you go. If God doesn't give you permission, what should you do? Stay. And learn the lesson of Job, who helped us address the question, not how do I get out of this, but what can I get out of this? Job started looking for how do I get out of this awful thing that's happened to me. But God brings him around by the end of the book of Job and says, Job, the the question is not how do you get out of this, the question is what will you get out of this? It's very possible where God has you and he brings a hardship into your life that he wants you to stop, drop, and pray and seek his face and not say, Lord, how do I get out of this? But say, Lord, I'm open. What do you want me to get out of this? Because if he's asking you to stay, he's given you an inheritance. And he says, it's time for you to take a step. I want you to appropriate a little more of the inheritance that I've given you in Christ. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, etc., etc. 1 Corinthians 13, love, Okay? This making sense? At least nod your head that you're with me or you're going, this is craziness. It isn't crazy. This is big picture of the scripture that you need to understand what's going on. It's not hard. It's just maybe nobody's ever told it to you. So here it is. Stay. Don't run. Egypt is a place to leave, not a place to... Not a place to live. It's a place to leave, not a place to live, unless God gives you permission. And the people he gave permission to in Genesis 46, gosh, I said it was going to be done. In Genesis 46, Jacob is getting ready to go to Egypt. He's just found out Joseph is alive. He's getting ready to go to Egypt. He stops close to the border and he worships. God shows up to him in a vision. I think Joseph is also, or Jacob is also asking a question. Lord, I'm not sure I'm supposed to go to Egypt. God shows up to him in a vision in chapter 46, and he says, Jacob, do not be afraid to go to Egypt. Why would Jacob be afraid if it was a place he was supposed to go? He wouldn't be. He wouldn't have even paused. He would, off he goes. But Jacob had learned the lesson from Grandpa. You don't go. Abraham gets in another situation later on in his life. And this time, he doesn't leave the promised land. He'll tell the same lie that he's going to tell. But he doesn't leave the land again. It's not until we get to Jacob. That we see somebody who runs. 
The story of Jacob is somebody who runs from God. And finally God says, I've had enough. No more running. And he touches Jacob's hip, throws it out of joint. Jacob never runs again. God doesn't want us running. God wants us to remain where he puts us and not ask the question, how do I get out of this, but ask the question, what can I get out of this? How will this hardship help me to appropriate more of the character of Christ? How will this hardship make me love him more, appreciate him more, be more grateful for him and what he's done? Okay. Ben, come up here. Ben and I were talking about this. He actually has a couple of really good examples that I wanted him to share. Uh, and then we're going to go on with chapter 12 and 13. Check, 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 check. Thanks, Chris. So as I was teaching Bill all this, we got to talking about <laughs> And uh, I didn't copyright it, so it's, it's a fair game. But um, we were talking about, we had that question, for those of y'all that were here last week, we had the question of, you know, what's your famine? What would that look like if you stayed in it? And honestly, Craig and I, we struggled initially with, with that metaphor because we wanted to make it a famine. Something is missing, and so we're going to go find it somewhere else. Um, but I just want to clarify with, with two stories from my life, things that have happened in the recent years since I became a believer four and a half years ago. One was a situation dealing with me, and it was a job situation. Some of you guys can, can appreciate The other thing was a situation uh, with my parents and the divorce that they recently went through. The first one was a situation where, you know, unlike a lot of you guys who were, uh, who were going through job loss, I was in a great job. I was making... You know, a ton of money. I was successful. I see David whispering to my old boss, my cousin Jay. Uh, but I was in sales, and I was doing great. I was mentored by you know one of my favorite people in the world, uh, making a ton of money. Uh, everything was going great. God brought me to Fort Worth for that job as a non-believer, and through that job and through a lot of circumstances surrounding that job, I became a believer. It's how I got plugged into Christ Chapel. It's how I. It's how, you know, I, I worked my tail off. I, 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 through those circumstances, God led me to Christ. So it's a wonderful thing. But a funny thing happened. After I became a believer, about a year into it, I'd gone through kind of a deep depression because uh, I was sort of working hard and playing hard, if you can imagine. But uh, uh, a funny thing happened at my job. Even though I was making lots of money, I was successful, I didn't have a passion for it. Uh, my passion died away. And, you know, Jay be the first one to tell you, he, he saw the change, and, and he was anticipating it. But some of the things I was striving for so much before, success, money, things like that, didn't they just didn't have as much of a glitter to them. And I knew that there was something else for me, but here's the catch. I didn't have the marching orders from God to move on to that something else. I didn't know what that something else was. Uh, so it, uh, a funny thing happened. Uh, Five months after I became a believer in October 2004, I got in a small group. It was a men's small group here at Christ Chapel. Uh, young and old guys, all having job considerations, career, what, what move to make, what job to get, finances, things like that. And we started praying for each other in March of 2005. And, you know, he asked how long, and I'm not going to give you a formula, but let me just tell you this. Those guys in that group prayed for me for nine months while I stayed at the job. And, and as Jay can attest, I think I, I kept the bar up. 
uh, as far as doing a good job and, and making a commitment to them. But that whole time I really struggled with, this, this isn't my passion, but the whole time I also knew God is not moving me somewhere else. I knew explicitly that God had brought me there because that's the circumstances through which he led me to Christ. So I knew I was supposed to be that. I just didn't know when to leave. Everything in me wanted to, to just go make a decision. You know, go go to seminary. You know, that's that's one of the things I really struggled with. I just want to go to seminary and learn more about the Bible and more about God. Uh, but I wasn't willing to take that step in my own effort. I wanted to wait for God. So lo and behold, nine months of these guys praying for me on December 27th, I think it was a Monday or Tuesday, 11 o'clock, I'm checking my email at night. I get this overwhelming, you know, for the second time in my life, I really felt God speak to my heart and say, it's time. It's time to quit your job. It's time to apply to seminary. And that was it. And it went away. And I thought, gosh, okay. So I stayed up that entire night, filled out my entire uh, online application to Dallas Theological Seminary with my writing samples, submitted it at 4.30 that morning, went to sleep for two hours and 15 minutes, woke up, took a shower, put on a three-piece suit, walked into Jay's office the very next morning, 7.45, knocked on his door, said, Jay, yeah, I need to talk to you. He said, come on, man. Of course, he'd been watching this whole time, and, and I said, I'm, I have to quit. I quit. You know, I love the job. I love you, but I have to quit. God's put something else in my heart. And it was so great because he said, you know what? That's, that's fine. He says, you need some time to transition off your accounts? I said, yeah, probably about four months. He said, okay. But what's so great about that is it completely changed my life because I had to downsize, I had to downgrade, I had to sell my truck, I had to figure out what to do. Ken came along, gave me a job, uh, working part-time up here with the men's ministry, which was fantastic, which has turned into this. Uh, but it taught me something. It taught me something about not to run to Egypt, not to run to self-effort. Lo and behold, my parents would, would face that same lesson, specifically my mom. Uh, and as you guys know, they went through a divorce, those of you all who kept track of me, uh, this last year. And I was talking to my mom last night, and just, it was an overwhelming sense of what do I have to, to show her besides lashing out, making her feel guilty uh, with an embittered approach, vindicating myself or whatever from, from the struggles of divorce and the things that I went through. And it's like it came over me actually yesterday after we talked about this, I can, I can show her that same lesson I learned. Because what she did, and many of y'all have experienced, because I know a lot of you guys have been through divorces, and maybe even more than one, but if you initiate a divorce, you're never going to hear God say, I want you to get a divorce. Like, let me let me be clear about that. And if you guys want to you know, sideline me after this, we can go grab some coffee. But if you ever hear a voice saying, you need to get out of this marriage, this marriage is rotten, go get a divorce, that's not God. I promise you, that's not God. We can talk about it. But my mom heard a voice. She knew it wasn't God. It was her own self-effort saying, there's a, there's, a, there's a famine of love here. There's a famine of passion in this marriage. Just like I had a lack of passion in my work, she had a lack of passion in her marriage after 30 years and said, I'm going to Egypt. You know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this out of self-effort. No, I don't feel like this is God's will. She's admitted that so much. No, I, I don't hear God calling me to Egypt. But I'm going to go anyway because I feel like there's such a bad famine in the land that there's no way God can provide sustenance, nourishment, love, compassion, um, uh, uh, just just perseverance in this situation. Uh, and so she took measures in her hands, and they finally just, they're divorced in July. And now it's really odd because she's asking me, she should, you know, just the interaction. I mean, we can attest to that in our family, but it's, it's a really odd thing. It's really awkward for me. But I was thinking about that, and I was just like. You know, I spent so much time 
maybe making you feel guilty, maybe attacking, maybe going after you, when I can teach you the same lesson that God taught me just a handful of years ago, which is stay in your circumstances, get down on your knees, pray to God. Yeah, it might take nine months, it might take nine years, but God will sustain you through that. He fed uh, Elijah, which I'll get to in May. He fed Elijah. He had ravens dropping meat and bread out of the sky twice a day during uh, a drought in the land to feed Elijah in the wilderness when he was running from Ahab and Jezebel. He can provide for you out of nothing. He provided uh, Isaac out of a bare womb. He provided uh, Jesus Christ from a virgin. Like He can provide for you in your situation. Know that. And anyway, if you guys have any questions about that, feel free to talk to me.